So, good afternoon, good evening. Still with North Carolina time here. So, good evening to all of you. Welcome. Thank you so much for visiting us today here. Thanks, special thanks to Baikunta Devpro for hosting this gathering. Um, before I start with a brief introduction to today's topic and to the series these days, I'd like to ask if any of you is basically first time that you are being like exposed to our particular tradition and the topics in connection to that, so I can be aware of that and convey my presentation with some empathy and sensitivity. So some of you are coming today for first time. Okay, welcome, especially. So <clears throat> we have been, the, to the topic for today's lecture will be fully human, fully divine. And we have chosen that topic as, as well as two other topics for tomorrow and Sunday morning. The idea will be to present, share with you a brief three series, three part series of lectures, all of them somehow connected with each other, related to a book that I uh, published a few months ago called Radical Personalism. So with your permission, I'd like to brief, share a brief introduction to the book and then in that connection enter to today's topic, fully human, fully divine. Uh, so radical personalism is a concept through which I personally, not only myself, but I'm talking for myself here, I choose to refer to my own tradition. My own tradition sometimes is known with other names, Krishna consciousness, Gaudiya Vaishnavism, Vaishnavism, Bhakti, Krishna Bhakti, Bhakti Yoga, many names. <laughs> uh, which basically refer to uh, the monotheistic and devotional mystical tradition in Hinduism in which we are worshipping God in a personal way. Because we say Hinduism, sometimes people stop me in the street and, and ask me like, what I am, just seeing me like that, they're kind of intrigued to what's behind those strange clothes. So... <laughs> Where to begin? No? That's the question. No? So what's your religion? And I'm like, do you have like three weeks to hear my reply to that? <laughs> that might take some time. Yeah. So it's difficult because I can say, okay, that, that, that's Hinduism. But Hinduism is an umbrella term for whatever happens in India in spiritual terms. In spiritual terms. <laughs> and not only one th single thing is happening in India in spiritual terms, what to speak in every other term. So to just say Hinduism is kind of a, I mean, the word Hinduism is not present in our scriptures, in our tradition. The very term Hinduism is very geographically tied to, again, whatever happens inside the Hindu huh, borders, in spiritually speaking. But inside Hinduism, there is this tradition called Vaishnavism, which sometimes... And I was talking last week with a Franciscan nun. Uh, she is also scientist and theologian. And we were having a, a podcast together. And I was telling her, actually, most of the people speak in terms of the three great world religions, and they refer to Christianity, Islam, and Judaism. But actually, the, 
at least in numbers, the third bigger, biggest world religion is Vaishnavism. Again, I'm not here promoting hierarchy according to numbers. I'm just introducing that there is a few millions, 600 million followers of Vaishnavism around the world. Uh, and I'm clarifying that because that has to do with sometimes people get the idea in India, there is a whole like uh, mixture of stuff, nothing too specific. <laughs> but actually there's many specific different things going on. So one of them is Vaishnavism that I like to call it radical personalism. So what do I mean by this? By personalism, we refer to a tradition in which we address the divine, we approach God in personal terms, in personalistic terms, as a person, basically. We want to develop a relationship with the divine in personal terms. For us, love, divine love is the the ultimate ideal of that relationship, and divine love is the most personal of all affairs. Love is the most personal thing through which you can get to know anyone in depth. I mean, I can get to know you in technical terms. I can find your name and Facebook profile, and how much is your weight and height and all that technical stuff, but I don't know you yet. But if I get to love you or if I get to connect with you in an intimate level, Oh, then I know you. So for us, love is the highest form of knowledge. Krishna says that in the Bhagavad Gita. He says, Raja Vidya. He defines bhakti or love as Raja Vidya, which means the king of knowledge. The best of all types of knowledge is love, which may sound counterintuitive to some because sometimes we relate knowledge with something going on in between our ears in this area. Knowledge, information, processing, no? like if everything's about computer stuff, no? like our head is a computer, basically, and knowledge is going on. But actually, ultimately, knowledge means, means love. That's, that's how you can know everything most comprehensively and everyone. That's kind of you, how you can relate to reality in the deepest way, through love. Mm-hmm. That's transformation, not only information. Information is there, but if there's no transformation, Information can be a problem. And all mystical traditions prevent us about that. Be careful with knowledge. If you understand knowledge as information. And our tradition says knowledge, it understands love, transformation. If there is information, it serves the purpose of transforming our hearts. So personalism means that for us. We try to relate to God. And when when I say relate to God, immediately I clarify by extension relate to everything else because there is nothing that exists separate from God at least in our particular tradition and in every other mystical tradition we have this idea of non-dual thinking which means apart from God nothing can exist separately everything is even in quantum physics you have established that very clearly everything is interrelated There's nothing that exists in its own orbit, so to say, alienated from a common center. Mm -hmm. And we ourselves have that knowledge as well. We call it Sambandagyan, which means the knowledge that teaches us about how everything is connected with the common 
center, a common goal. That's such a powerfully integrative, integrating and integ integrative con conception. Everything is interrelated. In fact, the opposite of that is basically the source of all problems around the world. To be, I don't want to sound reductionistic, but basically that's the case. The fact that we are seeing things as separate from each other, as separate from a common center, the fact that we fail so badly at establishing a common orbit around which everything is constellating, that's the main source of fear, of conflict, separate interest, of seeing ourselves as having nothing in common with each other and so on and so forth. So personalism brings back this idea, let's try to relate to everything in personal terms. And that's why I add to that radical. Ra the word radical is not a bad word. Don't get scared. Oh, we will have some radical stuff going on here. This is a secret meeting of anarchists or something. No, it's not about that. Radical just basically means something happening to the core, to the root. That's the meaning of radical. Radix comes from the Latin radix, which means to the very root. So radical personalism basically means <clears throat> how we can be persons to the very root, how we can relate to everything and everyone in the most personal possible way. We are already persons. We are individuals. But how much we have explored the limits of our personhood, our individuality, how much being persons, we end up many times being quite impersonal or depersonalized in the way we relate to everything sometimes, not only to God, to each other, to ourselves. <clears throat> so radical personalism basically is a way of addressing our tradition and a way of exploring what does it mean to be, to exist as an individual person. It may sound simple. Yeah, I'm a person, I exist, I have my own will and consciousness, but what's the reach and the ultimate potential of that? How much we have explored that? Mm -hmm. our, our teachers always invite us to explore our potential. So potential means you are something and you can become something else. What you are includes all that you can be, which is not the same. No. And of course, all that you can be can go in so many directions also. You can be a serial killer in potential. Hopefully we are not inspiring human whole collective of that <laughs> but mm -hmm. I'm just pointing to the fact that potential can be darkest potential can be brightest potential uh, so the potential is there in potential so many things can happen and that will depend on how we choose to be today <clears throat> so of course radical personalism points to let's try to uh, discover hmm, on earth our brightest potential. What's the maximum reach and potential we have as consciousness and spiritual beings in connections to the divine, to our source? What's all that we can be? At least I personally am thrilled about discovering that, about exploring 
that direction. Because generally, when we look at who we are, to begin with, we, we are not very generous with ourselves many times. <laughs> and when we look at ourselves, we do it with one whip in one hand and one mirror in another and comparing ourselves with everyone else and, and just the whip buried next to us just in case. No. <laughs> and we are not very generous with ourselves. And sometimes we extend that lack of generosity to mm. our environment. Mm. And sometimes we just lead lives in a very narrow way, conceiving ourselves in a very narrow way, seeing others in very ungenerous, ungenerous ways, and even sometimes conceiving God from a very limited perspective and choosing to live our life like, okay, that's God. And many times we relate more with our own idea of God than with who God is, actually. <coughs> I've talked many times with some people I know and friends that they don't believe in God. Uh, and of course, for me, it's not about believing, but it's about having a personal direct experience. But many, every time that they explain to me why they don't, they cannot accept that, is they share an idea that for them is unacceptable. And of course, I totally agree with that. <laughs> I say, oh, for me also, that idea is unacceptable. God cannot be that. But still, you are telling me an idea. You are showing me an idea of the person. So one thing is the idea we may have, whether it is acceptable or unacceptable. But another thing is the experience of the person. Follow it. There's a difference there. We, we may have an idea about God. And we may choose to believe in that idea. We may choose to reject the idea and say God doesn't exist. Or we may say the idea sounds fancy. God exists. But the point is, in both cases, it's only an idea you are believing in. It's not relating to the actual person. <laughs> and spiritual life is about personal connection with the divine person and everything in connection to him. So in connection to that, in connection to the idea we may have of God, the idea we may have of ourselves, because many times once one thing is reflected in the other how we treat one thing is how we treat everything else how we do something is how we do everything else this is common knowledge it's not that i don't know i'm in church and i'm very beautiful and sweet and then i treat everyone else terribly it's like <laughs> you are making a performance in the church basically if that's the case <laughs> So my point is, what I believe, which is my higher ideal, this, it will be reflected in how you do every single little thing in your daily life. You follow my point? It has to, it, there has to be some natural alignment in, in everything, from the church day to how you spend your time in the bathroom, to how you relate to your family members, to how you behave in your moments of greatest despair. I mean, in all, every single moment of your life, we are showing who we are and who we want to be. I always like to quote Thomas Merton. He likes to say, your salvation begins in the most ordinary moments of your daily life, he will say, interestingly. Your salvation begins there. Not so much in the moments that you are in the most, I don't know, in a peak 
your daily peak of dopamine or something. <laughs> but when you're going through the most so-called ordinary moments of your daily life, what, what, what are you doing there? Try to find the extraordinary there. So for us, the idea we have of the divine is very important. And that reflects on how we see ourselves. And today's title in this connection is fully human and fully divine. Mm -hmm. Which again, it may sound for some people uh, counterintuitive. I know many people who cannot accommodate these two being together. For some people, if you are divine, that implies you cannot be human. And if you're human, that implies you cannot be spiritual or divine. Like for some people, one is suffocating the other. So that's a very important point that we need to, to redeem, so to say, inside of us, in case that, that, that confusion is there. So for us, the goal of life is to be fully human and fully divine. Sometimes we call it divine humanism. For us, God is not just divine. For, our, for us, God is also human, fully human. In other traditions, they also will have this notion. So spirituality doesn't mean transcending humanity, rejecting humanity. Sometimes I've heard this type of ideas. <laughs> People thinking, Humanity is getting on the way of my spirituality. So the more spiritual you are, and that's a dangerous conclusion, the less human you have to be. And it's like, oops, no? that can lead to so much what they call spiritual bypassing, to so much evasiveness, to so much inhuman behavior in the name of spirituality. So humanity is not a problem. Being human for us is not a problem. With all that being human entails, again, being human involves experiencing bodily dimension, mental dimension, psychic dimension, emotional dimension, spiritual dimension. And all that is to be integrated in a higher equation. For us, spiritual life doesn't mean rejecting anything, but integrating integration, wholeness. My book, in my book, I mentioned that it's not only about holiness, but it's about wholeness and holiness. Now that the two of them can be combined. And we can call it holiness. Now we can make a new word, combining wholeness and holiness. <laughs> At this point, I lost how to pronounce it. <laughs> because Again, everything is an emanation of the divine. Everything is, in our tradition, we'll say the only thing that exists is God and his energies. And everything is that. There's nothing apart from that. We have the divine source and all its different energies. We are one of those energies. This world is another one of those energies. <clears throat> and so on and so forth. So there's nothing apart from God and his energies. So if everything and all those energies are 
his energy. So his or her, I don't want to sound, uh, how to say, chauvinistic. And so in our tradition, God can be both female and male. And of course, not female and male in the way we used to think about female and male. There are so many ways to think about that. So when I say God, I can say he, she, I can say they. We have even the idea of God as a divine couple. So, and I may get lost in, in gender pronouns in, in given the class. So I'm saying just he for the sake of clarity, but you can say he, she, they, hmm? Mahaprabhu, Radha and Krishna, and so on and so forth. Oh, God. <laughs> God is a community. <laughs> so, <you're well>. hmm? <laughs> so, so everything is connected to the divine. So if everything is an energy of the divine, why, why do I have to think in terms of rejecting something? So the only thing that needs to be rejected is our lack of vision of how everything is connected to the divine. But if you have the proper vision, nothing needs to be rejected because everything is already part of something of a sacred play, if we want to call it like that. We have the term in Sanskrit, lila. Maybe you have heard the word lila. So lila means sacred play. Mm -hmm. Play, we play, we like to play. Everyone likes to play. So Lila means a play, it's a play that you are doing it out of joy. It's the opposite of karma. You have heard the word karma. Karma means more like forced labor. Labor? Labor? Labor. labor. Forced labor. Lila means free play. There's one book even called Free Play. Very interesting. Written by one violinist. He speaks about improvis improvisation in music. And he begins a book describing the idea of Lila and Krishna, and he speaks about Krishna. <laughs> yeah. 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 I read that one before meeting Krishna and his practice. I was a musician, so I was like, okay. And I was into Indian music, lots of improvisation there. So, okay, this is a book about improvisation and starts talking about Krishna Lila. And it's like, okay. <laughs> He's showing, like, improvisation means something that. It's free movement. No. You are not calculating. Okay, now comes this, then comes this chore. Now, but at the same time, there is some perimeter. It's not that the musicians do whatever they like. Absolutely, absolute chaos. It's not that. So there are some parameters. In Indian music, you have this. In jazz, you have that. They have some parameters of harmony, melody, rhythm. But in the context of that, free flow, free play. There's a charm to that because if you are a musician and you enter into that flow, you become you are basically possessed <laughs> by something higher, of course. So Lila is similar to that. There are some parameters, there are certain rules to the play, to the game, but inside those rules, there is so much freedom. Just like if I tell you, okay, let's play something, there are some parameters. Like if I say, let's play chess, there are some parameters. I cannot just move the pieces as I want. But in those parameters, there are infinite possibilities at the same time. The possibilities are infinite, but there are some parameters. If there are no parameters, there are no rules, there is no game. 
So our idea is that God is entirely dedicated to Lila, to play, to game. He's so full in himself. He's experiencing such joy, we call it Ananda, that the outcome of being so full is celebrating his fullness. Try to imagine a person who is absolutely fulfilled. So that it will be difficult for that person to just sit quietly in meditation, even. <laughs> because that person is overflowing. So that person may feel the need to celebrate, to dance, to sing, to play. <laughs> celebratory movement, Lila. That's another way of describing Lila. Celebratory movement. Celebratory and participatory. We are being invited to be part of that. And even this whole world, this whole material creation, that unfortunately sometimes even religious people uh, label as profane, as something that gets in the way of God, as something that is bad, as something that we need to leave as soon as possible. That's not our view, actually. Our view is, I mean, again, this one of the shaktis of God, this one of the potencies of God, if properly addressed, if properly conceived, there's no problem with it. It's not entangling, it's facilitating, it's illuminating. It's one of his lilas, called Shristi Lila, the play of creation. But everything is play at the end of the day. <laughs> everything is lila. So, this God that is immersed in play, this God that is immersed in celebration, this God that is so fulfilled that wants to, is like overflowing in himself and is extending that to us. That person is fully human and fully divine. And that's our prospect as well, to be fully human and fully divine. And sometimes it's more difficult for us to be fully human than fully spiritual, interestingly. <laughs> I've seen lots of people who have quite a problem with being human, <laughs> with accepting that they're a human, with embracing human condition, with going through the motions of what entails being a human being, and having certain emotions and having certain experiences that sometimes they prefer to deny in the name of being transcendental. But being transcendental doesn't mean Rejecting anything, as I mentioned. Being transcendental means everything is made part of a higher equation, so to say. <clears throat> so in our particular scriptures, the human form of life is specially praised, specially praised as a very <clears throat> unique vehicle to attain the highest goal of life. Now, there is something important here. It is described that we, in one sense, are not the human vehicle, but we are a spiritual spark, spiritual soul. So the soul is not human. You follow? The soul, the soul is not by constitution human, because there are souls in other forms. There are souls in animal bodies, and those souls are not animals. In constitution, it's a soul. So the soul is in the plant. No? 
and they are not human ontologically. It's Atman in Sanskrit, Atman. So we are Atman. So by nature, we are not human. We are in a human vehicle, but <laughs> our ultimate goal in life includes an identity which will be human. <laughs> so we are not human, but if we attain the type of perfection we want to attain, we will be human, <laughs> fully human and fully divine. But the thing is that being human, of course, to attain such a full human situation, we have to start here and now, being human. What to speak of fully human? Let's begin being human. <laughs> because, and that's interesting because sometimes, and, and you may say, what do you mean, Swami? I'm already human. Look, and we point at the vehicle. I'm human. And the pointing means, I have the vehicle, but the question is what you are doing with the vehicle. You can have the, a car, a vehicle, and you're using that to kill people, just like in video games, people is like killing everyone in the car. That was not the purpose of the car. So that we have the human vehicle doesn't necessarily mean that we are human. In fact, sometimes we use the expression inhuman. And you only will tell, will call inhuman someone who is in a human vehicle. You will never call in human a cat, a bird, a plant. That was so inhuman what they did. No, <laughs> that, that doesn't happen. Even if a lion is devouring its prey, that's not inhuman. That's according to their nature and, and so on and so forth. So we only reserve the label inhuman, the honorary title, <laughs> For someone who is not human in behavior, but human in vehicle. So that points that having the human vehicle doesn't necessarily mean we are in human life or in human consciousness. So that's very important to understand the importance of being human as a, if you will, preliminary stage for full spirituality. Mm -hmm. Very important. One of the main lines in our tradition from one text called Vedanta Sutra, the main, the first sutra, the very first sutra say, Atatu Brahma Jignasa. So Atatu Brahma Jignasa means now, and now I will explain what does now mean. <laughs> now, Brahma Jignasa. Brahma Jignasa means is the time to inquire about the absolute, about the divine, about God, about the soul, and so on. Brahman can mean all those things. So it says now. So the question is now, what does it mean now? Now that I'm reading this, now that I'm... And of course the commentators have said different things. But many of them will say now means now that you have the human vehicle, is a moment to inquire about. Now that you have attained human life, it's a moment to inquire about the absolute. And the commentators explain that also now means, now that you have gone through different other texts in our tradition, which deal 
with the different human dimensions. So also the now can mean now that you are a balanced human being, now that you have pay attention to how to have your psyche and, and stomach and pockets in place, so to say, financially stable, no? that you have figured out how to conduct yourself in the world properly, now is the moment to inquire into the absolute. No? Because if those things are not properly dealt with, looking for God may be just a escape mechanism or something. It can happen. Different parts of scripture is mentioned that not every person approaches God with the same intention, with the same background, with the same orientation. And we can approach God or even invoke the name of the divine to justify anything. If we study the history of human of humanity, the worst things in history have been done in the name of God. <laughs> in the name of this Bible, in the name of this book, that book. You could just pick any line from any book and you can, I mean, as we were talking the other day, you know, the creator, the one who created the atomic bomb, Oppenheimer, he was inspired to do so by reading Bhagavad Gita. And when the bomb was exploding, he quoted 11th chapter of the Bhagavad Gita. Krishna saying, time I am destroyer of all. <laughs> so, again, you can read Bhagavad Gita and end up creating the atomic bomb. That was not the idea of Krishna, but it can happen. You can take one line, in the name of God, destroying the whole universe. <laughs> again, we have potential in many directions as we were talking before. So, again, we have the human vehicle. But being a human person, attaining human consciousness, human life, that's a little different. And, and that's the goal, of course. If you have a human vehicle, the goal is to use it in such a way that you behave according to what's expected from a human. That's a very interesting point because all the other species are behaving according to what's expected from them. <laughs> you won't find a dolphin acting like a giraffe or like a bird trying to imitate a gorilla, or like a cactus, whatever, no? Copy-pasting minerals. I mean, each one is aligned with their expectations of their vehicle. Only we are the exception to that. <laughs> because human life and human consciousness allows for further expression of our will and that can be risky. Again, if properly used, we can end up choosing love and experiencing the heights of transcendence. And, 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 and God is giving us that freedom to choose, and that's risky. But for love to be chosen, I mean, for love to happen, choice had to be there. That's my point. And that implies risk. Because you can choose something else, and you can choose atomic bomb so to say, or so many other things. So we are having that those options. And many times, unfortunately, we choose in the wrong direction. And we see why we human beings are having such a hard time in this world many times. Because many times we get overtly concerned with things that 
we shouldn't. All the other species are acting according to their nature. And all the other species are finding, most of them mostly, all the, their needs are met. If they are put in the natural environment, if, if a human doesn't appear and take the gorilla and puts him in a zoo or in a city or somewhere else, if they are in their natural environment, probably they will receive whatever they need on a daily basis. <laughs> but humans sometimes experience these extreme scarcities and different types of lackings before, because again, we probably are obsessed <clears throat> in a direction that doesn't include fully human, fully divine prospect. So the, the, the meaning for our human existence, the purpose, nowadays in the world we are experiencing a deep crisis of meaning and purpose. That's all pervading. Almost, especially younger generations, but in general, there is a deep crisis of meaning and purpose. And of course, that's the worst thing that can happen because even if you have everything else, <laughs> if that has no meaning, there is no purpose. All those things are just basically ornamentations on, on a corpse, the scripture will use that language, so to say. So it's important that we are able to find meaning and purpose in whatever we are doing. So the human form of life have to do with this, have to do with, okay, I explore the limits, what does it mean to be a person, what does it mean to be a human being, how can I relate in a human way to myself, to others. Human in many ways means sensitive. How many times you will say to someone, be more human, please be more human. Immediately the idea is be more empathic, sensitive, caring, kind, loving, all that list in that direction. That means also human. <clears throat> and in complement with that, yes, we are pursuing spirituality. We are pursuing the truth of the soul, the truth of God, who himself, in our tradition at least, he is fully human and fully divine. We call him Krishna. Maybe you have heard that word one of his names, many other names as well, but one of his names is Krishna. And for us, Krishna, how to say, is God, but sorry if I became a little bit too theologically challenging, but he's more than God. And what do I mean by this? He's still God, but he's so immersed in the experience of full humanity also, that he relates with his lovers, his devotees, his servants. He relates in such a level of intimacy that the idea that he's God goes to like a, behind the curtains, to the background. He steals God, but he's so immersed in the experience of fully human, fully divine love that he experiences himself mostly as the lover of Radha, so to say, the friend of Sridam, Sudam, the son of Yashoda, Nanda, and so on. Sometimes I share this example to help clarify further this idea, which I know is 
complex. Imagine that, like you are the, I don't know, the president of the United States, or you don't want to be that. <laughs> Let's be hypothetical for a moment. Someone else is the president, not you. <laughs> and we won't say who, just someone, not maybe the United States. Someone is the president of Singapore. Let's go a little bit more to an unrelated platform. <laughs> I don't want to stir local sensibilities. So you are the president of any given country. So you have that identity. You are the president. So some things, you have some responsibilities and you're managing stuff. So, but the president, after being in the government house that day, he returns to his home. And at home, and at home his grandchild is waiting. And the grandchild is not thinking, oh, the president of Singapore is coming home. No, he's thinking, grandpa is coming home. That's, a, that's how he sees him. And he's waiting behind the door. And the president of Singapore enters the house. And the grandchild jumps on top of the president of Singapore and tells him, go to the floor. I want you to be a snake now. <laughs> to the president of the country, he's saying that. Imagine if someone does that in the government house. Imagine the secretary of the president jumps up on the press and say, go to the floor. I mean, with some luck, he will lose only his job. <laughs> Probably a little more. So, but the grandchild is saying that. Go to the floor and just like move in zigzag. And the president of Singapore is doing that. Wow. He's on the floor, 65-year-old man moving like as much as he can, like a snake on the floor. <laughs> and this child on top of him and beating him. Come on, come on. You're not doing fine. This is, what are you doing? Huh? This is not a snake. Well, what's, what are you? Who do you think you are? The president of Singapore? Come on, you are a snake. <laughs> you are my grandpa and you are a snake. Those are the two only designations I will accept. And the president of Singapore at that precise moment, he has totally forgotten that he's the president of Singapore. He's completely immersed into the experience of being snake <laughs> or his grandchild. But he's still officially the president of Singapore. It's not that someone else, we lost the president. He's still officially that, but at that moment, that's somewhere else in his, in the background of his consciousness. Do you follow my example? So for the grandchild, he's not the president. He's my grandfather. And for the president, at that moment, he doesn't feel I'm the president. I'm his, my, my grandchild's grandpa. That's his sense of identity. So that's for us Krishna, basically. The president of Singapore will be God, the president of the cosmos, the controller. The, and Krishna will be God at home. God playing snake. <laughs> you follow. God impacted by the power of intimate love from his closest ones. So he still is God. He still is the president of the cosmos. But he's something more, not less, but more than that. And that's only because he's fully human and fully divine. Because if he will be only fully divine, the only awareness that remains is I'm God. 
I'm fully divine. Divine means divine. I'm God, I'm God, I'm God. Everyone is reminding me that and reminding myself godly. But the fact that God is not only fully divine, but fully human allows for that particular unique experience and interaction. When he becomes so overwhelmed by that love that he, quote unquote, forgets that he is God somehow. And that's especially charming because that allows for so much intimacy. Again, going back to the Singapore example, uh, that's so much more charming seeing the president doing playing snake with a grandchild on his back. That's so much more charming than him entering the government house and everything is bureaucracy and formality. Good morning. Hello, Mr. President. How are you? That's so boring by comparison. And he himself is doing all that, but he's just waiting. Oh, I wish I, wish I will be back at home and playing snake with my grandchildren. <laughs> There's so much more rasa there, so much more juice of life in, in that intimate, intimate setting. So the same, if, if that happens with the president of Singapore, why doesn't it? That happens because that happens with God to begin with. <laughs> so he has all this divine, majestic side is there. And if someone wants to relate to him from that place, that there's place for that. We are not condemning that that's beautiful in its own way. But we feel very inclined to the idea of fully human also. So if God is fully human and fully divine, and those at least who feel attracted to relate from that place are also invited to become fully human and fully divine. That's the only way you can relate to such a person. I cannot relate to, to such a person in other terms. If he's fully human and fully divine, I have to be fully human and fully divine. So we, so we speak the same language, basically. So from that place, uh, <clears throat> in, in my particular book, Radical Personalism, I, I dedicated a few chapters to this idea, first of all, to establish this important point. The divine is fully human and fully divine. And if we want to relate with such a divine, we have to be fully human and fully divine. And that begins here and now. It doesn't begin next lifetime in 20 years. It begins today, what do I do with my humanity? How I'm treating my humanity? How I'm treating my divine prospect? Because as I say, sometimes we may be in human body, but we may behave quite inhumanly. And we may be already spiritual beings, but we may be quite unaware of our spiritual nature. That can happen. I'm not saying that's happening in everyone's case, but that can happen. So we have this double homework, so to say. Oh, humanity and divinity. So I'm a spirit. I'm already spiritual, but how much I am aware of my spiritual identity and, and my prospect and potential. I have the human vehicle. What I'm doing with the vehicle, how much that's translated in human character, human relationships. So ideally, the project or the challenge is to integrate these two: humanity. Divinity or spirituality, humanity, the two of them go hand by hand. They're not mutually exclusive. And sorry if it sounds I'm pounding this post too much, but I've seen so much 
of the opposite in the name of spirituality. So that I feel the need. Maybe it's, it's, it's my own PTSD now here playing out. <laughs> Religious PTSD. Uh, but <laughs> sometimes I've seen a little bit a bunch of this, and I'm not. I'm not saying I'm totally free from that myself. So I'm saying that to myself first. But let's be very careful that, in the name of being a spiritual, being transcendental, not dismissing our humanity, not using spirituality to avoid being human. That's very delicate. We can end up with a lot of professional narrative on the level lip service, as we would call from our mouth out lots of high absolute ideas about transcendence, but in our daily way of relating, we may be lacking humanity considerably. L lack of integration, lack of what we were talking these days with, I couldn't have the lack of shadow work, lack of integrating our shadow, our personality, our different human dimensions, acknowledging them, healing them, going through the, Grieving that we may need to go, <laughs> allowing all the things to happen, understand there are certain emotions that sometimes typically historically has have been labeled as bad in spiritual circles, and realizing they're not bad. They're not bad emotions. There are bad things we do with our emotions. <laughs> but in one sense, they're not bad emotions in those emotions are. They're not good, but there are. <laughs> what we do with them is good or bad. <laughs> you follow? I mean, you can have anger and deal with that emotion in a positive way. And you can have happiness and deal with that emotion in a negative way. <laughs> that can happen. You can, have, you can become addicted, as I say, to only being happy at every moment. <laughs> and sometimes you need to suffer. And I'm not promoting masochism here. I'm just saying pain is a great portal to growth and maturity and, and opening the heart. As one of my friends and inspirations, Richard Rohr, will say, you know, there are two ways in which our heart opens, great love and great pain. Generally, if those two are not happening, most of us are like... <laughs> not very open, basically, but just going through the motions in a very like predictable mechanical way <laughs> but for the heart to be open great love or great pain so again it's with this i'm not saying pray for great pain but if great pain comes host it honor it and, I, and i'm not saying that from a comfort zone i i'm not, and i don't want to enter into my unauthorized autobiography but I mean, I've gone through lots of pain. So I, I'm saying that, at least speaking from my own experience, I will say the most painful moments in my life were the most insightful. It was like hell, but it was totally insightful. It was totally necessary. <laughs> uh, so I'm saying all this because, again, no, that means to be human. And I know that I'm saying all the things and each one of you have gone, have had their, your own pains. You are going through that. You will go, be going through that past, present, or future. And also great love. So many beautiful things that imply being human. Mm -hmm. So all of that is to be honored and accepted. Mm -hmm. And of course, there is something in us that 
still we feel uh, how to say no yeah still there is some struggle there is some denial there is some rebellion there are some like we feel that um, I'm collapsing by having to deal with this particular situation it's important that even if we need some time to go through that we don't cancel all those chapters all those chapters are necessary <clears throat> we may need to be further prepared educated strengthened Supported, that's for sure. And we will continue talking about that, especially tomorrow. We will talk about vulnerability and empowerment. Mm -hmm. So I, I, I'm just giving a trailer here now. <laughs> <laughs> but this is very connected to the idea of being fully human. Being fully human also means acknowledging you are vulnerable. I mean, and it's okay. It's not bad to be vulnerable, but it's important to know how to, when to express vulnerability in a safe container, in a safe space, to avoid abuse, to avoid confusion, but we need. We are vulnerable by nature, <laughs> but we need to acknowledge these things in, in a circle of trust where we can be ourselves without the fear of being judged, where we can remain naked, so to say, open, understanding I'm being seen by the eye of unconditional love, not by judgment. All these experiences are crucial for our humanity to, to flourish, to blossom, <clears throat> and to be fully divine and fully human. Again, we don't want one without the other. We don't want only to be human, because actually the, 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 the very potential of being human has to do with the spirituality. But the highest reach of spirituality in our tradition is fully human at the same time. Mm -hmm. So anyhow, I don't want to overextend myself today. And I also want to leave, I want to leave a few minutes in case you have questions, in case you have something you may like to share, ask. I've gone for an hour or so. And as I mentioned, today was like kind of a, Introduction to the topic, to this three-day series. Tomorrow we'll be talking on vulnerability and empowerment. I gave a little trailer of that. And on Sunday morning we'll be talking on knowing through unknowing and the importance of coexisting with, coexisting with uncertainty and doubts and making friends with the unknown and those things that are mysterious. We were talking a little bit about that before the lecture. <laughs> yeah. So I, I don't promise to keep you in the comfort zone these days. I, I can promise you the opposite, but uh, we'll try to make it relatively comfortable in that context <laughs> because we need some comfort. If it's too uncomfortable, that will be. Yeah, yeah. We have to try to remain comfortable with discomfort. But yeah, hopefully we can share a few challenging ideas, but challenging, not like traumatizing, but just challenging enough to invite us to, to look at ourselves and our life from, from alternative perspectives than the ones we are accustomed to relate to ourselves, to everything, because that's necessary. You know? We need to invoke a few alternative viewpoints to realize, oh, 
life can be seen from here. All life can be seen from here as well. And it looks so different. <laughs> but we need to change for that to happen. And change is a natural law of nature. Again, that's it. We have to normalize change. We have to normalize a few other things as well, but change one of them. No? To keep to to keep or to remain ourselves in this, so to say, liquid state of change, of flow. If you don't are if you are not liquid, you don't flow. You become solid ice, so to say, and nothing changes. So how to remain in a in a permanent state of openness to change to possibility, to unpredictability. It may sound scary, but it shouldn't be. That, that's where all our potential is waiting us. So we will talk about that these days. I've given enough trailers today. <laughs> so I don't know if there are any questions or something you may like to, to share, to ask about. Yes, Madhumati. I was thinking, you know, Krishna is always in Leela yes. and loving and so caring. And how is it that we start thinking that he's out to get us, out to punish us? And then, you know, so often, you know, from the pulpit, people are shaking their fingers and we end up living in fear rather than moving towards love. Mm -hmm. What do you think that phenomenon is? Well, the immediate thing that comes to mind is just projection from unresolved childhood issues with authority figures. I mean, I don't want to sound like I'm giving the diagnosis for the whole world, <laughs> but that's a big percentage. I mean, I, I don't have the exact numbers, the statistics here, but it's almost 100%. <laughs> I, I, there is one book, I haven't read it, but I'm interested in too, that makes this very like, so to say, scholarly statistics and numbers and research, and they show how basically every single person that is atheistic and has a problem with God has some problem with their father when they were a child. And there's this a very, like, astonishing correlation. It's unconscious, of course, but it's there. There is some unresolved, and for most of us, there is something unresolved with our authority figures as child it's not that even if our parents were nice there's always something unresolved that needs to be eventually acknowledged and integrated because probably that may be filtered in the way we project our idea of who god is even and, and as you say you know, it's interesting and i've seen that a lot especially in our tradition that our official, so to say, definition of God is extremely sweet and attractive and intimate and merciful, and all these qualities that shouldn't be, I mean, that are the opposite of how many of the members of that same tradition choose to feel, even if they say, Oh, Krishna is the all attractive and he's an ocean of mercy. I mean, they, they know the narrative. <laughs> they know they know what to say, what, what is being said about him. But then in practice, in how they internally relate to the to God, there are so many, without bad intention again, and without being conscious of that, but so many of this unresolved mm, stuff comes to the surface in how they shoo, shoo, 
no, no, Krishna will be angry with me if I do this. And, and I have to really struggle and make effort to, to win his love, mm -hmm. to earn his love. And that's nonsense, technically speaking. <laughs> no, the very idea that we have to earn God's love, that's ridiculous. Why I'm saying that? Because our tradition and every mystical tradition describes God is loving everyone unconditionally without beginning. So it's not that you have to earn his love. He already loves you. But that's too much for us to understand many times. We are so conditioned to not experiencing that, that we think that I don't deserve, I'm not worthy, I have to win it myself always. And that can be exhausting because divine love cannot be earned by personal effort. <laughs> no, it's already there, it's already given. But it's too much. Sometimes that they say it's too good to be true. No? We, we cannot... We cannot accept it, but that's so healing to reach that point. Like I'm already being loved in all my messiness, in all the disaster I may still be, at least myself, I'm talking for me here. <laughs> I'm being loved in the most disastrous moments of my daily life. That's completely shocking. That's more, that's completely. And try to think about that for a moment, especially think about the things that, those moments of the day that you feel the worst about yourself. <laughs> Try to remind, at least one person is loving you unconditionally in this precise moment. You are already being loved. That, that's so much like counterintuitive to the way we tend to operate in this world, which everything is conditional, no, not unconditional. It's conditional. If you are perfect, I love you. If you do what I want, I do what you want. Let's sign the contract. <laughs> Everything is the small letters, every page, lots of small letters. Just sign here. <laughs> oh, bring me the lens. No, just sign here. Yeah. So, so yeah. So that's a point. That's it. We need to like to break that false myth of who God is and how we. Because if not, we orient ourselves in life in such an exhausting, from such an exhausting place. Like, I'm never enough. I'm never enough. I will, I'm not worthy. I will never be worthy. And I have to earn that. And the, the minimum mistake you make, and you will make it many times per day. <laughs> oh, I made it wrong again. I'm going backwards again. I'm losing all that I did. Krishna's not liking me. He will get angry. And all those are your ideas. Krishna has nothing to do with that. But you are creating all this movie in your own mind about God being angry and now not. And I, I'm got to And that's all the filters of unresolved issues that probably that we have to address. And that's for me it's also an important point in connection to fully human, fully divine. Because until and unless we have healed those dimensions of our probably childhood and past, probably we'll be carrying all those things even to God. <laughs> and that will affect the way we are relating to the divine. We are conducting our practice. We are doing probably everything. <laughs> so we may need to, with surgical precision, trying to start to like dissect and flesh out and 
okay, what's going on here? Because God is merciful, God is loving. So it's not Krishna, the one who's torturing me. It's myself. <laughs> I'm my worst enemy. <laughs> there are no enemies, technically speaking, outside. Krishna says that in the Bhagavad Gita. I had to torture a little bit you with, with Sanskrit. <laughs> I tried to contain the whole lecture, but a little bit. <laughs> so Krishna is saying there are six chapters, six verses of the Gita. The mind can be, if the mind is controlled, your mind is your best friend. If the mind is out of control, your mind is your worst enemy. So the same thing can be best or worse. And the mind is not a person. There's not someone else there. No, it's an instrument that if I am my best friend, my mind will be my best friend. If I am my worst enemy, my mind will be my worst enemy. It's like your stomach. Mine is like the stomach of the psychic body. So like your stomach. Sometimes if you eat, I don't know, three kilos of French fries. <laughs> don't do that, please. <laughs> it's just an hypothetical suicidal example. <laughs> you will be dying probably if you are still alive. You are in the process of dying. You will say, oh, my stomach is killing me. No, you just have the expression. But the stomach is not a separate entity that is attacking you. Actually, you are killing your stomach by putting all that stuff there. It's not that the stomach is killing you, although you exp we express in the backwards way. That's our lack of res personal responsibility. Oh, my stomach is killing me. <laughs> and the stomach says, well, what did you put here 15 minutes ago? So I'm killing my I'm feeding my stomach with junk so to say, in excess, and now I'm dying. So the mind is the stomach of our subtle psychic body. So if I'm feeding my mind with toxic thoughts and thought patterns like the ones I've described, some of them being neurotic and paranoid, don't be surprised if you feel my mind is killing me or my mind is my worst enemy, as Krishna would say. So the challenge now is, Okay, maybe your mind is your worst enemy now. The challenge is make your worst enemy into your best friend. That's a challenge. Try to think about the, the person that you may label your worst enemy in your life. Probably we are not that important to have enemies, but <laughs> imagine the worst. And, and Chris say, even worse than that is your mind out of control. And now try to think that person, your worst enemy, try to think, what should I do to make that person my best friend? And now go to the mind, which is even a worse enemy and has to become even a better friend. It's not impossible. As I like to say, it's not easy, but it's not impossible. It's difficult. And difficult is the middle point between impossible and easy. Impossible Easy. Oh. Because I'm telling you, what's the opposite of easy? And people say difficult. No. Possible of easy is impossible. Mm. The opposite of easy is impossible. The middle point between easy and impossible is difficult. Mm. Difficult is not an extreme. Difficult is the middle point. <laughs> we want to thread the middle path. So, so yeah, I will say that that's one of the main there may be other reasons, of course. We may have been received a wrong version of who God is, but 
on a God level, on a common sense level, we know that that cannot be. Because if not, we'll end up being an atheist and saying God doesn't exist. Because most of the people who say God doesn't exist, they are saying that I cannot believe in a God like that. And I will subscribe to them. Yeah, I cannot believe in a God like, like that either. But that's not God. <laughs> that's the point. It's an interesting thing. It's like we may think of God in that negative way, but sometimes when people are preaching it as well, then it's, you know, our worst fears and anxieties get get inculcated even more by, but so it's in the name of, so lots of times it's in the name of religion. Also. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. God's out to get you. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, the proper say, no, this process is like how to say razor's blade, razor's edge, edge yeah. sorry, air razor's edge. So you can engage with it in the best possible way and attain the brightest jewel, or you can like destroy yourself mm -hmm. <laughs> if you are not handling that properly. So, yeah, we can just, as I said before, we can justify so many horrible things in the name of God, religion, spirituality. Mm -hmm all these noble ideals. So we have to be very honest and very very transparent and very willing to, to be educated on an ongoing level and to acknowledge our misconceptions because that will happen also. No? It's not that, okay, I'm starting to practice and I'm understanding everything perfectly. I don't need to revise anything. And probably after 10, 20, 30 years, you will realize, Oof, I got this wrong idea for three decades. No? <laughs> oh my gosh, I've been practicing with this particular misconception for so long. But I'm glad that I'm realizing that. So I, I'm celebrating that. No, it's not that, oh, how could I be so stupid? I mean, that's life, it happens. But we, so we should be open to that. I'm not saying everything we know is wrong, but we will talk about that on Sunday. But even everything we know that may be correct can be understood always in a deeper and broader way. So let's be careful not to become very attached to, oh, I have this correct idea about Krishna, so that's it. Yeah, that's it, but it can always be this and this and this and this. So you have to remain always in that fluid fluid state of conversation, so to say. Can I comment on that. Srila Sridhar Maharaj once mentioned that, <clears throat> you know, we try to conceive of the infinite hmm. inside a Good luck. Mind. Yeah. He said the infinite by its nature cannot be confined within a finite mind. Mm -hmm. So he said, you know, is it even possible to count the grains of sand or number of stars and the different aphorisms of Zen, mm -hmm. for example. Mm. But he said, if the infinite is truly infinite, it has the ability to reveal itself in all its infiniteness to the finite mind. Mm -hmm. So that is revelation. Mm -hmm. And that's the de descending process of understanding the infinite within our finite self. So that there is an avenue there. Mm. There is an avenue. And um, I, I had one question. I'm going to be not the devil's advocate, but I'm going to be the mind body's advocate. Let's see. Whomever, whomever's advocate you want to be. So the, the whole theme of this <coughs> evening is radical personalism. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of people that believe, well, God's not a person. 
God is just a force and energy that mm -hmm. pervades everything. Mm -hmm. We're all one. We're mm -hmm. that force, and ultimately, the ultimate truth is we're not really this personality. We're not this person. God's not a person. We're just mm -hmm. we merge with that divine mm -hmm. set. So, how do you reconcile that understanding with radical personalism? Okay. Well, sorry, to guys. <laughs> yeah, to begin with, I will say God is is a person, but also he has his impersonal aspect. So that's also part of him. That means to be infinite. <laughs> he can be a person and be impersonal. And that's described in scripture, Brahman, Paramatma, Bhagavan. Brahmeti, Paramatmeti, Bhagavaniti, Shabdite. So Brahman is described like the uh, in in Indif how do you say indefinite? Um, the, uh, indistinguishable. Or, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So, so that that side is there. So I think as as strongly as some teachers have talked, have spoken. I will, I won't say against that, but just like emphasizing that's not the only thing. I think it's important to acknowledge that's a possibility. And, 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 and there are practitioners who want to experience some form, so to say, of merging into that undifferentiated, that was the word I was looking, sorry, <laughs> undifferentiated state. And the scriptures acknowledge that that possibility is there. It's not our particular goal in our tradition, but that's there. And that's a possibility in transcendence. So if that's a possibility in transcendence, I mean, I have nothing against that. <laughs> it's, it's not my cup of tea, but I have nothing against it because if, if that's possible for eternity, for some reason that exists that. So radical personalism, at least in, in how I experience it, it's not so much about condemning whatever is different from radical personalism because that will be another yet another form of fundamentalism which is if you are not like me you are completely wrong so unless you are in my team and the point is here there are so many teams now we are dealing with the infinite again so that's a very i appreciate your point because it's it's humbling it's, it's grounding whenever we, we start to become too elitist or too like my group, my conception, my God, my personalism. Wait, 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 wait. We are dealing with the infinite here. So infinite means infinite possibilities. Watch out to, in the name of emphasizing the best thing, trying to be reductionistic in terms of possibilities. Only my proposal is the possibility. Like I remember once someone asked Srila Siddharmaras in connection to what you mentioned, someone came to an ashram and he was he was looking at the altar and watching the Archabigraha, the deities, and he said, So what's that? And one devotee say, in a very sensitive way, <laughs> this devotee replied to the guest, Oh, that's God. <laughs> so eh, for someone coming for a first day, that can be too much. <laughs> I say, no, no, that cannot be God. That's just a statue that's that's the form a limited form how i mean god is unlimited well, the person broke the idea god is unlimited 
what is infinite? So how can be limited to that particular form? And Srila Siyamaraj heard the conversation and came into the scene. <laughs> and he said, if God is unlimited, he can be in this particular form and still be unlimited. That <laughs> means to be unlimited, that he can adopt any form he wants and still that form is unlimited. Unlimited means unlimited possibility. <laughs> so, so I will say that, yeah, in our particular tradition and radical personalism, sorry, presents a, emphasizes this idea of ultimately our goal is per, relation with God in person and relation with everything as persons. For us, we are eternally people, individuals. And actually, and this was described in the scripture, <clears throat> those who want to attain this undifferentiated experience ideally acknowledge that all these personal relationships exist. And only then they can attain that experience. If someone says, oh, God is not a person, mm -hmm. you are not a person, that's false. That's described in scripture as an apparat, as an offense toward the eternal form of God. But if someone says, yeah, I acknowledge that God has a form, he's a person, but I personally am attracted to the undifferentiated experience mm -hmm. and I go for it, okay? And you can attain that. That's not, again, our goal. That's not our emphasis, our school. But because something is not our school, doesn't mean that it has to be stigmatized or something. Mm -hmm. Sometimes our teachers have spoke strongly about that, but I will say mostly from the perspective of experiencing the, 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 the relish of a personal loving relationship with God and somehow out of ecstasy, using expressions that outside, without understanding that may sound a little bit too much. <laughs> and if we copy paste that without having that realization, that can be quite unbecoming and, and fanatical. So, so yes, we are to, to honor and to respect uh, differences of opinion in, in different schools and try, as long as they have their valid presentation and they're respectful to other traditions. It was one of the things that Srila Prabhupada repeated over, mm -hmm. repeated again and again, he would say, mm. yeah. yeah, yeah, as we say that, okay, if it's someone who is an, an impersonalist, as we may call them, uh, not in a derogatory way, just, just as we are personalists, someone may be impersonalist, and we say for them to attain the goal, they have to acknowledge that we personalists also exist. I would say the opposite for us. No? <laughs> we have also to acknowledge that impersonalism exists and there is place for that. All this not our cup of tea. Because mm -hmm. if we just cancel that possibility, that may get in the way of our own attainment. Mm -hmm. So again, the absolute is both personal and impersonal. It's infinite. Mm -hmm. And in between so many layers of experience, because when I say personal, there are so many personal forms of God that we can relate to. So, yeah, thank you for the question. <clears throat> There's anything else before we conclude? Yes. Thank What's you. your name, sir? Kurnamai. Kurnamai. Thank you for the class. So, no, pleasure. atheism was mentioned a couple times, mm -hmm. and then you had said like reductionism. Yeah, what? reductionism. So, I hear it said often like 
atheists have no good qualities, right? If someone is not practicing Krishna consciousness. I hope I didn't without, say that in the class. No, you didn't say oh, that. Okay, thank you. <laughs> so that's without, that they have no good qualities. And that's something that always has sat really unwell with me. With um, me also. So I want to get your opinion about that because I yeah. think there's people in whatever path, spiritual path or religious path, who are doing beautiful things. They could be vegetarian, giving to charity, being good people, and then people who are so-called spiritual who are committing abuse in many different ways. Mm -hmm. So... How, I just want to get your opinion about that. Yeah, I think you already know my opinion. <laughs> but I will say something else for sure. But yeah, as I mentioned to you, and, and of course, it's not only you, the one who have heard those things. I've heard those things as well. Uh, and of course, with this, we are not here condemning anyone, not even the ones who say those things. <laughs> but also pointing with, hopefully, with compassion and objectivity that there are degrees of advancement and levels of consciousness even for those who are practicing a path like ours so it may not be a surprise that in the beginning stages some practitioners of our bhakti tradition will be pretty fanatical like with any other tradition and, and there's a place for that there's like okay you have a license for being in kindergarten in a few years <laughs> to follow my, I mean, I'm not validating that, but I'm saying probably that will happen in, in the beginning. At, at one point, you already have to leave kindergarten, and, and if you insist on remaining there forever with particular narrow-mindedness and way to relate to everything, like in this black and white thing, like only those who are devoted have all these qualities, those who are not. It's basically are saying those who belong to my tribe are saved, <laughs> uh, and those outside of my tribe are damned which makes no sense but sometimes we buy into that mm -hmm. because we say that in a more nuanced way more fancy way <laughs> but it's the same principle so again you can be in kindergarten and be a little bit like uh, fanatic and rigid and, and your ways of thinking <laughs> okay there is place for you to to, to make him to embarrass yourself in that way. In yeah, it can happen. It can happen. Uh, in the beginning, you may need to think in that way. You know? My thing is the best. Everything is the best. And very absolutistic way. Whomever is not doing that, like I said the other day, sometimes I hear the expression non-devotees. I don't like that expression because it's it, it, the tone and the implications of that I mean, if you speak about St. Francis of Assisi, we'll call him a non-devotee. I wish I had the fervor and passion and devotion that he had. <laughs> I will say he's a non-Gaudiya Vaishnav. It's okay. That's not diminishing him. But non-devotee is like, hmm. It has some subtle connotation that I'm, I do not agree with. But again, in some beginning stages, some, some of us are a little bit more tribal we have more tribalism in our minds. Like my tribe, we are the safe ones. We are the best. We are the better, which is another way of, by extension, saying I am the best. Mm -hmm. My religion is the best. The mission I belong is the best. My guru is the best among other gurus. The temple I am is the best. And again, it boils down to I am the best, <laughs> which at the end of the day, you have to at, at least one day we have to realize. I'm not the best. <laughs> and I don't need to be. Ooh, such a relief. 
But some people, yeah, I mean, and probably all of us have gone or will go or are going through this kindergarten chapter. And Sula Prabhupada gave this example that didn't make sense for me, which is the one of the of the fence. Like the beginning, he described the beginning of the, the, the spiritual practice. Mahaprabhu gives this analogy of the vine as well. A vine that is growing and you receive the seed first. So the seed is put on the earth. Weeds are pulled out. You put the water on the first bud. The budding stage of the seed scars, the first little parts come. And you build a fence around. Because in those beginning stages, the, the first sprouts... The first sprouts are too fragile and tender. If there's no fence, the wind may agitate and even uproot that. So there's a fence on a certain height. So the sprouts are growing inside that fence and do not know anything outside the fence. It's just, this is reality. Now, there's so much outside the fence. <laughs> they, they are not ready to see it yet because that will affect the rooting. But when they are rooted enough, the sprout grew above the fence and they can deal with all the diversity that is outside of the fence. They are properly rooted now. So the same idea will be in the beginning of our practice, we have this fencing of fanaticism and black and white and only the votes have good qualities and sectarian and fanatic. I mean, that's totally unbecoming, but <laughs> if it's a kindergarten stage, it can even have some charm. Like if you see like a baby of two, three years speaking some nonsense in very extreme way, like if he says, my daddy is the best dad in the whole universe. And it's charming two, three years. Of course, you even smile. If he says that having 25 years and he's trying to convince every other child of the planet about how his dad is paramount, that's a clinical case. <laughs> so... Clinical case here or something charming here. Huh? So again, it's charming if it happens in a legal kindergarten period inside the fence. But when you are going outside the fence, no longer required to do that. I mean, that can be harmful to you to begin with. So, so I will say, yeah, there, there's, I'm saying I'm trying to put everything on the scale. So allowing that that may happen on certain stage, there is period to be, Again, immature, fanatical, sectarian. <laughs> it's unavoidable just to not condemn those who are there or we who may be there. I may need to be there for a moment thinking like, okay, this is the best. I cannot even read other books because I will get confused. I need to be grounded in my own tradition. No, First, I have to, I would like to have interfaith dialogue, but basically, but if you are too, you don't know your own tradition, you may get like, totally confused so at first you get grounded in your tradition that may be seen as fanatical or you're not open to talk to everyone else and it's not oh, i'm preparing myself to do that someday but first i need to have proper grounding so so yeah there are as you mentioned there are good people good qualities in different places there are of course degrees of or types of qualities <clears throat> But it's not that there's nothing that we, we can learn from anyone else because that's extreme. Like I was saying the other day, and I need to give names, but <laughs> I shared a quote from one uh, relatively well-known contemporary psychologist, uh, which I do not agree with him on everything, but I agree with him on many things he says. 
And I share a quote from him in social media and someone like immediately objected like, Maharaj, what are you doing sharing this? Devotees shouldn't read from this person because that person is not vegetarian and therefore he's in animal consciousness and therefore has nothing to teach to us. I was like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> and he was not a person in kindergarten stage. I mean, he was, but he shouldn't be. <laughs> it was already like maybe 30, 40 years of practicing. So no, the license, it was too much to extend the license to that point. Uh, and yeah, it was like, and I and I, I was a little bit maybe sarcastic, but I tried to make a point to him, and I told, uh, "Okay, I have nothing to learn from this person because this person is not vegetarian, so I shouldn't be sharing this with the, my community." Okay, so what should I be sharing? Bhagavad Gita is okay. Yes, but no, I don't think we should. I, I think I should cancel sharing Bhagavad Gita. Why? Well, because one of the two main characters of the book, Arjuna, he's not vegetarian. So he says, he has nothing to teach me. So better let's stop reading Bhagavad Gita. Well, of course, that's not my idea, but I made that point, like making the point like... Mm. <laughs> mm. 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 We have to cancel Bhagavad Gita, we have to cancel our own tradition goes bankrupt <laughs> so yeah we have to be careful of what we say and how we think and, and, and not to be very yeah very 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 extreme as you mentioned also no because in the and generally those who sometimes say those things we can we cannot learn anything from them all this like no good qualities out outcasts or something <laughs> are many of the same people who in the name of their tradition are doing so much Mischief, so to say, consciously or unconsciously. No? So, and many of the things happen again unconsciously. Mm -hmm. So, so yeah, I mean, I, I don't know how much percentage, but I would say at least 50%, maybe more, 75% of the content of my book is pointed about many things like that, no? like the ones you mentioned, like. We have this philosophy, but we're misrepresenting this in this way. We, I, I'm accustomed to hear this from the members of my community, and this is totally misrepresentative of how we are relating to others. And so it's kind of an invitation to reconceive and recalibrate what's our tradition, how we are representing to ourselves, how we are thinking of that, and like an invitation to the GPSA, no? recalibrating, no? <laughs> find a new path because the other one is just leading to a cliff or something. No? So, yeah, I agree. You had compared the mind and the stomach. Uh -huh. You also mentioned that we can try to make the mind, the mind when it's our best friend, can try to win the friendship of the mind when it's our worst enemy. So one of the best ways to do that to make a friend is to feed them. Mm -hmm. So we have some wonderful prasad. <laughs> I knew, I knew what's going there. <laughs> so we already arranged this. I arranged this analogy with Baikuntade before the class. So I, 
now I I I'm, I give I gave him the signal, so it was it was the moment. So yeah, we are ready for. Prabhupada said the best way to make a friend is to give them a cookie. Okay. So you can make even your enemy your friend. Okay, we'll we'll try our best. So thank you. It's possible, it's possible. Yeah. There are infinite possibilities, as we mentioned. Yeah. Okay, so before going to the cookies and making further friendship, or some other things, if you don't like cookies, just in case you have another things. Yeah, any, any other last Last comment, last question, something else before concluding? <clears throat> we have some friends connected online as well. Questions or no, not yet. Okay, we'll conclude here and we are more than welcome, of course, to join us tomorrow, same timing. Tomorrow we'll be talking on vulnerability and empowerment, con continuing with this ongoing reflection and on Sunday, 11 a.m., we'll be talking on uh, knowing through unknowing, basically. So those will be the topics, trying to keep all of that under the umbrella of radical personalism and so on. So again, thank you so much for your presence, your attention, very valuable attention and presence and hearing. It's minimum 50% of the equation. Although I'm here in this fancy seat, talking like nothing, <laughs> hearing and listening is crucial and, and just being present is so much of a reciprocation, so I really appreciate that. Thank you so much, Vaikun Tadeh Prabhu, for the invitations to all of you. Hope to see you soon. Sri Sri Radha Govinda Ki Jai, Sri Man Mahaprabhu Ki Jai, Gaur Bhakta Vrinda Ki Jai, Gaur Pramanam Hari Hari Gaur.